Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm Tim Cronin. We're here today with attorney Steve Strum of the law firm Sandberg Phoenix in St. Louis. Hi, Steve. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. I looked at the website. It said that you have more than 150 attorneys. We're probably uh, knocking on the door of 200 attorneys in five offices in Illinois and Missouri. And one reason we had you on is because we tend to talk about plaintiff side of issues more often than defense, even though I had a defense background, so did John Simon. But we're reaching out to more defense attorneys to get your perspective, even though there's a huge overlap in what we all do. There are differences, and we'll talk about some of those in the second episode. And thanks for staying around for two. But for our first episode, we're going to be talking about one of your areas where you spend a lot of your time, and that's on nursing home cases. Sure. Maybe, though, before we start, we could talk a little bit about you. You and I are uh, walking partners. We About once a month, we walk and talk and talk about all kinds of things. So this is just like that without the walking for me. Well, why don't you talk about how we met? Because I think that's an interesting story and it might segue into a few things. Well, it's funny because how we met was a case where I actually represented the plaintiff and you had the defendant, which was a little different, right? Right. For me, although I do a little bit of plaintiff's work, but this was a very significant wrongful death case involving an automobile accident and a delivery driver. You and I did battle on that with our teams, wound up eventually resolving the case. And that's how I met uh, Eric Veith. There's a lot of folks I know who are not lawyers who are just surprised that people can get along when they're opposing each other on a case. I think most lawyers get it, but a lot of other folks outside of law don't, that you're just doing your job. And once you walk out of the hearing, even though one of you bashed the other, it's just, you know, you're back in the normal world. Well, you know, you and I, I think, unfortunately, I wouldn't say we're a dying breed, but we don't take things personally. It's like you said, we have a job to do, a client to represent, and you do the best to represent your client. Unfortunately, there are a lot of lawyers that look at it differently and it becomes personal and the attacks become personal. And the next thing you know, they're fighting over something that really has nothing to do with the true issues in the case. You and I rose above that, and I certainly appreciate that when I'm opposing somebody where we're dealing with the representation of our clients and not just, you know, fighting and arguing just for the benefit of fighting and arguing. How did you become an attorney? Well, I always wanted to be an attorney, which is interesting because I have no attorneys in my family. But ever since I can remember the age of 10, I always wanted to be an attorney. There was never a question about whether or not I was going to do it. It was just, what is the path for that? When I graduated high school, I didn't do particularly well, but I also wasn't mature enough to leave home. I wasn't ready for it. And so I went to a community college. I grew up in central Illinois in Springfield and went to a community college for two years. And that's where I really buckled down and knew that I needed to get serious about my grades if I was going to go to law school and succeed in law school. So I did two years at a place called Lincoln Land Community College and got an associate's degree, and then went on to the University of Illinois in Champaign. And that's finished. where I did my undergrad too, Steve. Well, there you go. So they got at least two good lawyers from there, <laughs> right? They're two good people. Did two years there, got my bachelor's degree, and then it was time for law school, and had a lot of good choices, and chose St. Louis University, 
attended St. Louis University Law School from 1985 to 1988. You know, it was really tough back then, and frankly, it's probably the same now, to get a, a legal internship after your first year of law school. They really do tend to focus on, you know, the people that are between their second and third year. I was fortunate enough to be able to go back to my hometown and work that summer for the prosecutor's office in Sangamon County, Illinois. And then when I came back for my second year of law school, between my second and third year that summer, I accepted a summer internship at a law firm called Shepherd Sandberg in Phoenix, which was the predecessor firm of where I am now. I did a summer there. And then my third year of law school, I clerked for the public defender's office in the city of St. Louis and also for a judge in Madison County, Illinois, Judge Charles Chapman. After my summer internship at Shepherd Sandberg and Phoenix, they offered me a job to start there when I graduated law school, and I took it, and I haven't left. I've been there since I started September 6th of 1988 and became a full-time equity partner in 1995, and here we are 35 years after starting, and I'm still at the same place. Can you tell us a little bit about the firm, Steve? I mean, I have cases with attorneys at Sandberg Phoenix. I don't think you and I have had one together. A lot of different practice areas at Sandberg Phoenix. I deal with Mr. Bean a lot with medical malpractice and Ms. Bartosiak. And then I've had some cases with some other partners at your firm. But can you just kind of give our listeners an overview of the type of work Sandberg Phoenix does? Sure. Well, when the firm was formed in 1979, it was a spinoff of actually a firm called Coburn & Croft where John Simon was. Yeah. And so it was at the time that it was formed, and frankly, at the time that I started there, it was considered a tort boutique firm, medical malpractice, product liability. That was essentially it. It is now obviously evolved into something quite bigger than that. And there's really no area of law that we don't do now. I yeah. mean, we've got a big corporate department. Do you have a big, um, like, estate planning department? We have estate planning I, department. I think one of your attorneys is like, my mom's the state attorney. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Big estate planning. We have family law. You know, we've taken on more and more lawyers that are respecting the community to handle family law. Probably the only area, although we do some criminal when it's white collar related, but I would say that that's probably the thinnest area that we don't do work in. We are, I think, the largest and have been the largest defender of local hospitals in the hospital litigation, which is probably where you're dealing with Ken Bean. BJC. Correct. We do a ton of work for BJC. And so I would say it's probably 50% tort litigation, 50% corporate slash business. And you focus on the tort litigation defense work, right? That's exclusively all I do. Okay. And one of those areas involves nursing homes. Correct. And you don't just dabble in it. I see in your bio, you've handled, evaluated, or managed more than 500 nursing home cases over 15 states. It's probably closer to 700 now. So you're the right guy to be here to talk about this topic. So uh, let's dig in. When you say nursing home, my mom, for instance, just went into an assisted living. So I know what that is. But could you distinguish between assisted living and nursing home and maybe distinguish how much of the one you handle versus the other? Sure. Well, assisted living is essentially a format where the person needs some level of assistance with their what they call the ADLs, which are activities of daily living, which are things like bathing, personal care, feeding, toileting. Um, they're able to live on their own. They just need some assistance in those areas. That is considered an assisted living environment. Skilled care is quite a bit different. Skilled care are people that are far enough along, whether it's physical or mental or combination of the two, where they need 
total care, 24-hour. It doesn't mean that they're completely bed-bound. They may be able to ambulate on their own. They may be able to do transfers on their own from bed to wheelchair, wheelchair to standing, but they do need, because of a diagnosis or diagnoses, they do need 24-hour care. Typically, in the litigation world, your cases involve skilled care and not assisted So I would say, you know, 95 plus percent of my cases are skilled care. Every once in a while, you'll get an assisted care case or, you know, even to the other end of assisted is just residential care, which is they just live in an apartment on your campus. And the only assistance you may be providing is a dining hall. So those are the three major areas of this format. Within the nursing home cases, Steve, are there particular like major categories that you typically see? Yeah, I would say the major category of cases involve falls, they involve skin breakdown, they involve nutrition, hydration, which also can tie into skin breakdown because obviously they're tied together. And they involve just general issues related to advising the physician of a change in condition. Yeah. Sometimes medication issues like the right dose are given. Well, that's not, you know, I mean, that's up to the physician to make the prescription. So any prescription drug case in a nursing home world, you know, either involves giving the wrong one, which is not a good thing, right? or it involves that there is some form of reaction, negative reaction to the drug, and that the nursing staff, the doctors were not appropriately advised. I see elopement cases where they get out of the building. I see cases, unfortunately, where employees, staff members have sexual relationships with residents. I see cases involving resident having sexual relations with other residents. You know, they can be from very complicated cases because I don't know if you know this or not, but there is only one industry in this country that is more government regulated than the nursing homes, and that's nuclear power plants. And that's what makes these cases so complicated is because there's so many federal and state regulations that you're dealing with. So a lot of us middle-aged people, and sorry, Tim, I just put you in the same category as I just me. turned 40. Well, I was going <laughs> to say, it's kind of him to, to say that he and I are middle-aged. So that's the way I was looking at it. It's just amazing the number of people that we bump into who have mentioned to me in the last couple of years that their parent is in a facility of one sort or another. And I talked to you about my mom, for instance, and it's a big deal. It worries a lot of us to make sure we get the best possible care because we won't be there a lot. And so this is not really about the law, but what would you tell someone who says, we're shopping for a place for my mom or dad, and we want to make sure we don't have these kinds of problems that you're mentioning? People that come to me a lot and ask for that type of advice, you know, there's lots of things you can do. You can look on, you know, medicare.gov. There's a lot of different resources that you can look at in terms of looking at the reviews and looking at their history in terms of investigations and surveys. The one thing that needs to be part of the factor is what is the primary population? Is it private pay? Is it insurance pay? Is it Medicaid pay? Is it Medicare pay? And, you know, this is a general statement. I mean, there's a lot of good nursing homes out there. And there's a lot of good nursing homes that are predominantly Medicaid places, too, as well. I don't want to say that the... But But if uh, the nursing home is getting paid by private insurance, they're making more per patient, right? I mean, in general. 
there's more available for the needs. There's more available yeah. for staffing and for physical plant and things like that. That's and I, absolutely correct. I imagine, Steve, while I was in law school, I clerked at a firm on the east side, Becker, Paulson, Horner, and Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, Al, Al and Paulson, I went to law school. Yeah, Al and um, Kevin Horner, now Judge Horner. Correct. Who just won his election for circuit judge in St. Clair County. And, and did I did some, some work home for defense Kevin. Work. He did some nursing home defense work and some while I was there. But what I recall from that and from what other attorneys here have, a big issue in just about every case is the plaintiff is trying to show that it's understaffed, right? Regardless of the type of case, that's one of the avenues the plaintiff is going to is whether it's adequately staffed. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, that and, you know, profits over people. I mean, that's the argument that they like to make that, you know, you kept the money in your pocket and you didn't put it towards the staff and therefore it was understaffed. That is correct. And I mean, you know, so I'm dealing with staffing issues, you mm-hmm. know, 95 plus percent of my cases of any of the falls, skin breakdowns, nutrition, hydration. It's all about what did you have on there in Illinois? And I, my cases involve both Missouri and Illinois. And it is a big difference because Illinois, there's a direct formula mm-hmm. as to what your quote PPD patient per day versus Missouri. They don't have a formula. There's a big difference between the two states, but it is a major part of all cases. When we were sketching out some topics, you mentioned that this population has numerous comorbidities. It's a very fragile population. And I imagine it bears on the issue of damages quite a bit. And I don't know which way it pushes that you have a very fragile population, people that may not have many years remaining. They're already very sick. Could you tell us a little bit about the push and pull on that as far as how it pertains to damages to have that kind of a population? Well, you know, that sword has two sharp edges to it. As a defense lawyer, you got to be very careful about that because the argument that you don't want to make from my world is, well, gee whiz, they only had a couple more years. They're going to die anyway. They're going to die anyway because the flip side of the argument is, and that's why you have to pay extra those <laughs> years were so precious or those yeah. months were so precious. So. You know, my feeling is as you try cases involving, you know, children, this is the other end. They are, you know, as dangerous or some say even more dangerous in front of a jury. I have yet of the five or 700 cases, I've yet to have one involving lost wages. They don't, they don't involve many specials. Yeah. You're not looking at specials. Right. Maybe medical, you know, but, but yes, for the most part, it's all non-economic. I mean, I've dealt with not nursing home cases, but product cases where an elderly patient who was on hospice died and the defense counsel was going there, kept taking depots about how much time he only had left and the jury got angry. And I felt, and I imagine this is similar to what you're saying, he would have been better off just letting the jury get there themselves. That's exactly correct. Because they're going to do it on their own. (laughs) Right. Because they're going to. Yeah. But if you shove it down their throat, they are going to get angry. And not to get too far afield, but you know that's why when nursing home litigation started, I was there close to the beginning of it. It's, it really took off around early 90s, and I started doing it in 94, 95. And those first group of cases that were being tried in the 90s, you were seeing massive verdicts, 300 million. Yeah, I mean, they were really big. And part of that was they were trying the cases wrong. They were trying the wrong cases as well. They were trying them wrong. They were trying them like they were medical malpractice cases. And I jokingly say to people, because I used to teach this to other lawyers, not only in my firm and other firms where I was regional counsel, these cases involve essentially everything but the medicine. You've got to pay attention to physical plant, 
What does it smell like? What kind of a reputation does it have in the community? What are your staffing levels? What are your advertising? What's the profit margin? You know, all the things that really focus on non-medicine. So I do a lot of med mal and I feel like, you know, the general consensus in the community is, you know, hospitals and doctors are treated with a level of reverence. And so I always feel like I'm starting with an uphill battle mm -hmm. that a jury, a lot of people don't want to find for the plaintiff. Right. And I imagine in nursing home cases, that dynamic changes a little bit. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah. And so we've talked a little bit about what the plaintiff wants to focus on frequently, which are you know, red meat that the jury already thinks these places might be understaffed or their profits over safety. What kind of things do you want to focus on typically to kind of shift the jury's perspective about these places and what you're dealing with? When I go in front of a jury on a nursing home case, I know that I've already got two strikes against me. And so I have to be very careful about what I say and what I do because I only got one strike left. Yeah. It depends on the case, depends on the jurisdiction. There are times when I will do my own day in a life, not a video, but a day in the life of a CNA. I don't think that people really, the general population, understands the job that a CNA, a certified nurse's assistant, does. Mm -hmm. They don't do it for the money because they're the lowest paid in the building. And yet it's the hardest job. They are cleaning up the feces. They are- They're doing things people's family members don't want to do. Correct. Right. I mean, I've had CNAs that were beaten by prosthetic legs. They've been choked. They've been pinched. They've been spit at. It's a really hard job. Mm -hmm. And I want the jury to focus on what special people they are too, to spend their life doing this. It also depends on where I am. If I'm in the city of St. Louis versus a rural community, you know, a lot of times the rural communities, nursing homes, much different. Turnover is much different. It's much lower turnover. And the people that are in the building that are working are taking care of a community where it might have been their teacher. It might have been someone that they went to church with versus, you know, in the big city. You know, it's kind of a different relationship. So it really depends on where I am. But I want them to focus on the hard job that these people are doing. They're not just doing it for the money. When I go up to pick a jury, I may ask the jury, raise your hand if you're looking forward to the time when you give up your home, you give up your dog, you give up your family, and you go to a nursing home, and they all look at me like I have three eyes. Yeah. And my point, though, is I want them to feel that it is normal to be afraid of and dislike nursing homes because nobody wants to go there. Right. But I want them to understand that this is a necessary part of our world here. And unless we're going to close them all up and you're going to take care of them at home, we need nursing homes. Yeah. A lot of people will say, gee whiz, this is terrible. I need to fix this for my family or for myself so that when I go to a nursing home, I don't want to go to deal with these types of issues. In other words, there's like a natural kind of reptile sort of argument Absolutely. built into it. Absolutely. I imagine a couple other focuses are, as you've already pointed out, a lot of times what the staff of the nursing home is doing at least in part, is at the direction of a physician that's in charge of what treatment the patient needs and that the nursing home staff is just following the course that the physician set forward. Well, they are the eyes and ears of the physician. Right. So they're not only following the course of it, but they also need to, number one, make sure that they're doing everything that is outlined by the nursing staff and the physician staff, but also to ensure that if there's any change in condition, they tell them. They tell somebody. And I think that's one of the focuses in the cases a lot is they're not accurately reporting what's going on with the patient to the doctor to change the course. We didn't even talk about the record keeping. You know, I mean... 
no matter what world you're in, the record keeping is bad. Yeah. But when you get to the nursing home world, you know, there's never a perfect nursing home record keeping case. It doesn't exist. Is causation an issue in your cases a lot? I Always. imagine it probably is. Always. Yeah. Well, you've got a population that has so many comorbidities yeah. and you miss a med or you missed a treatment for skin breakdown. And yet this is a somebody that's got peripheral vascular disease, deep vein thrombosis, you know, things like that. I mean, so, you know, causation is a big part of a lot of cases. I mean, unless you have a fall that results in a fracture. Right. Yeah. But you got a fall that resulted in a fracture and then later on they died. Is they, it related to the fall or correct. is it other things? And correct. If it's a death case, I imagine you get into issues of the families bringing the case, how much the family came. I mean, it's kind of a delicate issue for you to address because you're kind of attacking them, but you kind of got to point out. Now you want millions of dollars and you didn't come see grandma for two years. That's exactly right. And, and it, you're right. It is a delicate issue, but it is we deal with it in almost every single case. We have certain populations that we look at and we know just by generalizations who's going to be there every day and who's not going to be there every day. And I will tell a real quick story. The first nursing home case I tried, which was in federal court here, liability was clear. Mm -hmm. And we let this gentleman get out and he froze to death out in the elements. His daughter brought the lawsuit and his daughter lived in Connecticut and she had not visited her dad in 27 years. I thought that might be important for the jury to hear. Yeah. She gave a very good reason for it. Her reason was she just was afraid to fly. The problem she had is, is that she flew to the trial. Yeah, that's a problem. And it was one of these times where I had sort of my Perry Mason moment where she was up there explaining her fear of flying. And that was the reason why I did not come and visit dad. And I kind of started to walk back to the table. And I said, oh, I just have one more question. How did you get here? And to be honest with you, it didn't matter what her answer was. Because if she said she drove, well, then the thought is, well, then why didn't you drive to come see your dad? Right. And she was honest. And she said, I flew. No, there's and no you, good answer. You heard the gasps from the jury. Yeah. I had a case years ago. They might have been the first trial I was involved in trying it with John. It was a railroad case. So not a nursing home case, but it was a death case where that was an issue in the case. The daughter's. You know, the defense was putting forth evidence that they didn't have a very close relationship with their dad and hadn't come to see him in a long time, didn't make it for his funeral, but they were there at the trial. And I think one of them on the stand, like, had a locket on with his picture and said they hadn't taken it off since he passed away. And I didn't notice. I didn't put the client on. I found this out after the verdict, which was a plaintiff's verdict, but not a large one talking to the jurors after, and apparently they noticed that the next day after she was on the stand, she, took it off. she didn't have the locket on. Yeah. And it was like, okay. I mean, juries see that there, stuff. We think there was negligence at fault here, but you didn't go to dad's funeral. You tried to have an excuse. Yeah. Well, and then you, right. And then you play in the truth and veracity of that witness. Right. You think you've pulled the wool over the jury's eyes. Mm. Yeah, right. There's 12 of them there. Yeah. Collectively, they're smarter than anybody else. That's exactly in the room. Right. What other kinds of things are you trying to do in voir dire? Or maybe some strategies you have in voir dire? Yeah, well, it depends on what about. the issues are in the case. I mean, generally, obviously, the fear of nursing homes, as we talked about. Um, but record keeping, you know, if we, you have a record keeping issue in your case, 
you know, you want to sort of hone in on a juror that in their job, they deal with record keeping and sort of get them to acknowledge that sometimes there's not enough time to do the record keeping because your job is to do the job yeah. and not to be writing a treatise every time you do something. Death and dying. I mean, there are experts that we use at times to explain to the jury death and dying because people don't know. They don't know what the body goes through. So if you have a skin breakdown case that is essentially, you know, plaintiffs are saying it's because you're not keeping them, you know, turned and rotated off of a bony prominence or it's because of lack of blood flow. And so you may have to explain to the jury, you know, the whole process of death and dying and what the body goes through. As it's shutting down. As it's shutting down, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we don't just all of a sudden close our eyes and go away like we do in the movies. And so, you know, it really becomes fact intensive as to what I'm going to focus on with the jury, depending upon the case. I imagine you have a lot of cases where the patient at issue is having, whether it's dementia or something similar, where there can be evidentiary issues. Well, most of the time they're not even deposed. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, it happens at times. You know, if somebody goes in for care and they're out of the nursing home, but most of the time their deposition is not even taken. Depending on how far along it is. Like if they have Alzheimer's or dementia, depending on how far along it is, you wouldn't even seek to take it. And the plaintiff would give grief about it back. And even if it was taken... If it was just like the court probably wouldn't let it in anyway. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest with you, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but most of my cases do involve either wrongful death or the person is deceased and it's a non-wrongful death case, but they did suffer an alleged injury during their time of life. Any other kind of major issues you have to deal with or strategies you employ specific to nursing home cases, Steve, that we haven't talked about as opposed to other general defense litigation? big part of what we deal with, problem that we deal with is turnover. And that's not just turnover because of the care that person is receiving, but once the case gets filed and once we start doing discovery and once depositions are getting scheduled, you know, everybody that was caring for this person is gone. They're not in the building. They're in another building. You know, they've left the nursing home world. And then you have the issues of finding them. You have the issues of they've got bad things to say about your home because they left under bad circumstances. And so I spend a lot of time with, you know, former employees in hopefully getting them to a point where they may have terrible things to say about their time at the nursing home. But I'm assuming that you gave really good care while you were there. And you may have bad things to say about others, but you gave good care because clearly if you had an issue, you would have said something. There's a lot of little nuances to the nursing home care that are very time consuming. I assume you have memory issues regarding the employees too. You know, if you've taken care of hundreds of people over many years and then this suit comes along, something that happened three years ago. It can, except, you know, if you've got some unusual circumstance where somebody, you know, fall and hit their head and suffered a subdural hematoma, typically they remember that, you know, or they suffered a significant fracture. I mean, yes, there are times when they say, you know, I don't know. Let me look at the chart. Let me see if I can jog my memory. But a lot of times they do remember. I deal with those issues in like standard med mal cases a lot where they, I don't remember. But in nursing home cases, you're dealing with the CNAs. They're seeing that patient every day. That's exactly So they probably know them better and remember them better than, you know, a primary care doctor who's seen my client a dozen times total over the course of like four years. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
they're there, whatever shift they're on, and one of the three shifts, and they're on a wing, and they're seeing the same patients over and over and over. You're absolutely correct. You've mentioned the problem with skin infections, I assume. Isn't there, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm just asking, is there a long window to catch these problems? And if someone dies of an infection, is there usually a pretty good argument from the plaintiff that, you know, you could have caught it in weeks before the person died or something? Not always. Sometimes it's a really short window between an open area and sepsis and death from sepsis or an infection that would have been noted in the urine. And if you would have done a urinalysis, they showed all the signs and symptoms. You didn't, you know, we don't employ doctors. I mean, see, people have this impression. It's like, well, who's the staff doctor, right? Nursing homes do not employ doctors. Okay. And that's a whole different world of when you have cases where the nursing home is a defendant and the doctor's a defendant. And is the doctor some independent or are they also the medical director of the nursing home? And is there going to be finger pointing going on? And is it going to be a doctor that says, well, had they told me about these things, I would have ordered X, Y, and Z. And that's where, you know, on our side, we're trying to get Absolutely. you two to point the finger you at want, each other. You love it. And you You're just trying to back stay and watch arm in arm and going, let's right. not do that. Yeah. Just, like let's just that. pop some popcorn <laughs> and watch the show because the jury is going to enter a verdict for the plaintiff. It's just a question of which defendant is going to yeah. bear it. But in answer to your question, Eric, I mean, infections can come about pretty quickly when you're dealing with this type of the population. How quickly? Oh, in a matter of hours. It can happen as a matter of hours. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, a population that's got so many issues going on. That's what makes it so complicated to take care of them. You know, one small issue that can lead to an infection that can lead to death in a matter of hours. And so, I mean, that's one of the causation issues you're dealing with. Right. Like, okay, I mean, even if you're saying we should have done it earlier, if we'd addressed it in half the amount of time, would it have made any difference? Correct. Yeah. That's exactly right. People don't go to nursing homes because they're well, and they don't have any issues. It's a difficult, difficult, difficult population. I can't say it, but I've always wanted to say in front of a jury, and you guys as trial lawyers know that you can't say this, but I've always wanted to say, you know, if you as a jury believe that there should be more staffing, there should be, you know, all these different things, then entering a big verdict is not the answer. The answer is write your local congressman or congresswoman and get the Medicaid reimbursement rate up because Missouri, by the way, is one of the lowest in the United States. And so, you know, what the jury really needs to know, but they are not entitled to know is, these nursing homes are getting, you know, in a Medicaid bed, for instance, they're getting such a low amount of money to provide 24-hour care to this person. Now, I get it. They chose to be in that business. But if they knew that some places the profit margin was so thin, I don't know. I don't know how they would feel about that. Yeah, I'd go ape if you said that in closing, Steve. Well, you, I could, <laughs> right. I could. You wouldn't do it. No, just, I just, couldn't. Just like absent a punitive argument, I can't make the direct send a message argument. Right. Like absent a punitive case, right. even though it's always kind of there. Right. You know? Yeah. Which is what you're pointing out. Even if as in a punitive case, it's always kind of there. Right. Whether they're doing it to try to make a change and send a message. Right. Versus the other homes where the profit margin is so big. But I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, when I get a chart, if I get it from nursing home X or nursing home Y and one is, you know, predominantly private pay, insurance pay, and the other one is not, I know what that chart's going to look like. One of them is going to read like a piece of music and one of them is, yeah, it's going to have some issues. 
Steve, thanks for joining us. This has been a good session. I learned a lot of things listening to you about a topic I don't know much about and from a perspective that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, thank you, Steve, for coming. Happy to do it. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.